I hope everybody had a uh, good New Year. We're starting out, and we're glad that you had a nice little break, and and uh, you're back with us. So let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for uh, everything that you provide for us. We thank you that um, each and every day is a gift, and that we can um, just experience those things fresh and anew. And as we take a, a look at some of the scripture in this uh New Testament survey class that maybe it'll give us an idea on on reading it fresh and anew or in a different way this year that uh, um, that just hadn't occurred to us. So we pray that we get some insight, um, that your wisdom and truth will always come out. And we just thank you that you have revealed to us those things you want us to know um, and have put it together in such an order that our lives can be different because of what you've done on our behalf. Uh, we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So we were uh, kind of painting the picture of the whole background, the political climate, the, um, what was going on with the Jews uh, at that time and the Gentiles and the Roman citizenry. And I know we swept through it pretty quick, um, but um, some of it will start to make a little sense as we look at some of these things. So you had all these different factions. You had a, a you know political power. Uh, the emperors were kind of uh, strong and and domineering and continued to do that. And as Christianity began to move, well, first as Christ came in his ministry, um, it started to kind of buck against some of the authorities that were there. And uh, that posed some, some challenges. And then as Christianity began to uh, take root and move out, it was seen as a threat to some of these political power structures. So you had the emperors, you had the um, Jewish hierarchy that had their own little established order, uh, and you had the, the different factions within Judaism who had certain expectations. And uh, some of that will come a little bit clearer as we look at the Gospels tonight. That's uh, what we want to do. So uh, we start out with the New Testament writings, and we're going to take a look uh, at the Gospels. So um, one of the things about the writings of the New Testament are the embodiment of the revelation of the holiness of God in an utterly righteous Son who empowers those who receive the revelation to become sons of God by making them righteous. And that's one of the things that John says. And so we get this different picture. It had never happened before and all of a sudden the righteousness of God, the very righteousness of God was in the flesh on the earth and appearing to people. Um, and so that's just a whole different thing, and that's what the New Testament uh, writings begin to record, this righteousness of God, which is entirely different than anything they had seen before. The um, books are written uh, likely from 45 to 100 A.D. None of them are dated specifically, um, but you can tell that uh, from some of the historical facts or things that they're doing, uh, you can kind of pinpoint where some of those things are, at least get a good uh, look at them. And um, as those New Testament books came together in the first century, um, certain things uh, happened, and you can see that the development of the church happened in these writings uh, through a period of time. And so if you look at that, they're laid out with um, the inception being the life of Christ from about 6 B.C. to 29 A.D., uh, that's uh, the generally understood time that Christ lived. The period is described by the four Gospels, which narrate with differing degrees of fullness the significant facts in the career of Jesus and give casual reference to other historical events. So 
the four Gospels are an account of the time that Jesus was in his earthly ministry. And we're going to see um, that those are by distinct people. The second part of the New Testament writings uh, was the expansion of the church. So from about 29 AD to 60 AD, it, it witnessed the missionary expansion, and then Paul began to write his letters. And then from 60 to 100 AD, there was a period of consolidation that brought um, a little bit more continuity to all the scattered people and the isolated bands of believers as they uh, shared these writings and, and it began to move into an institution. And so the movement of the church into a solidified group of people um, was happening in the later part of that. So um, there was really something going on. God was making a move and he was trying to establish the church to demonstrate his glory and his holiness and righteousness uh, out to the world. Now, one of the things that a lot of people do is they try and consolidate the Gospels. You've probably heard um, they talk about the Synoptic Gospels, and there's a lot of work to try and parallel uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke because a lot of those are consistent. And John is a, a little bit unique in the way that it lays out uh, some of the things and some, some of the things that he does. And, and so while a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to work those things out, it's more important to really understand that um, if you look at each account as a distinct writing to a particular audience, uh, it becomes a little bit clearer as to what was really going on. And so that's important to understand. So it's like um, I was thinking maybe of an analogy. Uh, several people were at uh, Miss J's Chitlin Fest, and I did a little bit of observation. It was a great thing. I did a little bit of observation uh, when I got there and of course, we were fashionably late, um, and we were going to sit down. So it seemed like in the kitchen, there was a large group of men kind of gathering around and talking. And in the living room area, it was predominantly women. But there were some women in the kitchen, and there were some men in the living room. Okay? And so there would be different perspectives kind of as to where you were. If you, if someone were to ask you, well, well you know, what was Chitlinfest like? And you know, maybe in one area it was about social, and another area it was uh, where you know maybe they talked a lot of theology, and and uh, and then if you ask Miss J what her impression of Chitlin Fest was, she'd say it was tiring, and I appreciate the people who helped clean up, right? So you get different perspectives of what goes on, and that's exactly what happened. Huh? Did you enjoy it? We enjoyed it too. It was a great. It was a great time. Um, and so uh, these different gospel accounts are kind of the same thing. Different perspectives of different people who lived in the event and were able to record. And some of them, as we'll see, didn't actually live uh, right in the event. Um, Luke, when he wrote his, he kind of did some research and pulled some facts together. He was not an immediate disciple of Christ. We're going to see that he kind of was probably a convert of Paul and uh, followed Paul around and then began to assemble some facts and some information to write to somebody. So, um, you know, don't, don't try and spend too much time consolidating the Gospels and seeing, you know, where they're the same. Look at each one uniquely from a perspective, um, and maybe that's just a new thing to do. I'm rereading um, from the beginning a little bit, and, and I just want to make sure that I just kind of look at, 
with a fresh eye every time that I uh, reread scripture. So, uh, so that's something there. There is, of course, harmony uh, when they're looked at collectively. Each gospel account makes an explicit or implicit claim that it is not an exhaustive account of all that Jesus said or did. And each one within themselves, they kind of have those. So uh, each writer uh, makes a distinction um, about what they're, you know, that, that this isn't everything. And the very differences between the writers speaks of independence. The similarities reflect a common background of information, a common subject of writing, and the common inspiration of God. And that's the most important thing. The Gospels, each Gospel writer was inspired by God to write these things um, for purposes, for reason, for recording of history, and ultimately uh, it came down for our benefit as we can go back and read about these events and uh, the theology, the doctrine that comes from it. All right, so the Gospel of Matthew is uh, attributed to the disciple of Matthew who was called by Jesus in, in uh, that Gospel in uh, Matthew 9. We see his calling, and uh, we can take a look at that, um, get a little facts about him. In Matthew chapter 9, 9 through 13, we see him being called. And as uh, it says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith, said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They, uh, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so in this calling of Matthew, he was a, a tax collector and he's sitting around. And, and uh, so there's certain things that we learn about that. Or if you dig into the history of, of what a tax collector is, he's probably detailed. He has some information. He paid attention as Jesus called him. And so... Um, uh, but he was also considered, um, um, you know, kind of persona non grata, maybe, is what we would say, that uh, the other people didn't really like him because if he was doing the work for um, the Roman Empire, he was not really considered a good friend of the Jews. He was kind of seen as a friend of the empire. And, uh, um, you know, so, so that's why the um, Pharisees would call out, why are you hanging out with these you know these people who are not really friends of Pharisees, friends of the Jews, and and just a bunch of scoundrel people. So, uh, you know, he, he even works that in there that he was probably kind of considered a little bit of an outsider. But Jesus called him, and so he had some observations and he saw some things, and uh, and he had that. But to understand um, what he wrote and why he wrote uh, is important. The writing is suited uh, for a church closely related to Judaism, and he puts a real heavy emphasis on the Messianic uh, atmosphere. So the Jews are looking 
for the Messiah to come. There had been, again, this intertestament period of time um, and some silence. And there started to be within them a longing for when is the fulfillment of the Messiah going to come and when is the kingdom going to be here? And so um, when Matthew writes, he kind of addresses that to this Jewish audience. And so his book has a heavy emphasis on that, the genealogy with uh, Christ being the son of David. Um, And yet it builds to a message uh, for the whole world. So uh, we can read it, we can see various things, but maybe we miss a lot of the historical prophecies unless we go back and look. But for a Jewish person to get this letter, it could really draw them to the point of saying they missed something. And with that, um, there's a a structure in there. Uh, Where did it have that? Okay. It's um, after the outline uh, that it really breaks down those ideas of what he's talking about. The expectation by the Jewish community for the kingdom of heaven to come is something that Matthew Uh, really builds on. So there's a couple things that outline this book, it looks like. Um, Two things about his ministry uh, is is pointed out that there, and the book has some distinctions of from that time on. There's like some breaking points in the biography of certain things that happen. Um, And so we get the rise of Jesus' preaching career, bringing him to public prominence, And then the second part is his popularity pointed to uh, culminating on the cross. And so there's two distinct divisions uh, within the biographical life of Jesus in his ministry, his rise um, in importance and stature and the people beginning to see him, and then his movement to the cross. And so those uh, distinctions are in the book of Matthew. And then topically... Uh, there's five different uh, distinct blocks. So when you uh, begin to look through the book, you'll find different things. And it says, when Jesus had finished. Uh, you'll see that repeating pattern. I remember when um, uh, when I was doing my seminary training and, and they talked about induction. That was one of the things, uh, inductive uh, Bible study, that was one of the things is as you read the broad book, you look for various phrases and turning points and then you can kind of mark some things out. So there becomes five very distinct uh, topical things that Jesus is talking about. So we have an introduction, um, we have a passion, and, uh, um, and oh, wait, um, and, and so those things that have Jesus finishing. But um, what that does, and the way that Matthew wrote that, is it leaves the reader with a decision regarding Jesus' claims. And um, and the following outline kind of has those different things broken down. So if you look what it is, um, the prophecies are realized about the Messiah, um, and then the principles of the Messiah are announced. Then the power of the Messiah is revealed as you see these things. He's demonstrating his power. Uh, his program is explained. The purpose of the Messiah is declared. And then there becomes a problem. When the Messiah is presented, he's rejected. And so then that leads to another thing of the passion. Um, and, uh, and then it just kind of closes out with some direction for all people. And so within that, 
we see that there's a strong emphasis on this being the Messiah who has come, but the rejection of the Messiah means that something else has to happen. So Matthew alone uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you don't find that in any of the other Gospels. So again, it points to the clear understanding that what um, Matthew was emphasizing is this Jewish heritage and the Messiah coming. Um, and when uh, that didn't materialize, uh, then it had, to, uh, it had to present another problem. And so when the actual physical kingdom couldn't come, there became a spiritual emphasis to the kingdom and, uh, and uh, Matthew notes that as well. And uh, ultimately that there is a demand for righteousness that exceeds the standard of Jewish legalism. And, and uh, that comes in salvation. So um, there's a lot within this. And as you read through that, you could see some of those things. Um, but uh, I just wanted to kind of point out some of those uh, distinctions. And so remembering... Um, that Matthew's gospel was a book written by a Jew to a group of Jews to kind of explain what happened to the kingdom that had been promised all along. It was presented and it was rejected. And so the Jewish audience would largely uh, kind of understand that. It was the expectation of Matthew's writing. So we end up with some um, questions that... Uh, Matthew left, and each of the Gospels are designed that way to make decisions. Um, and so uh, there's important things there. So when a lot of people talk about uh, the importance of the Gospels, we know that they're not used for us to do doctrinal things with, but what they all do is they point to what are you going to do about the person of Christ. And uh, that's one of the most important things uh, for salvation. We're going to turn to page 11 and start looking at the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is attributed to the person of John Mark, who uh, accompanied Barnabas and Paul on their apostolic mission the first time, and, uh, as we know from Scripture, uh, abandoned them. And <laughs> that didn't go over too well with Paul, um, but fortunately for us, we see in uh, later writings that he, uh, he felt that Mark was useful and he kind of welcomed him back. Um, but with that understanding, it caused, when they went out to the second missionary journey, uh, they split and Barnabas and Mark went down uh, and started to work in, a, in Africa and evangelizing. So most of their um, work and most of the things that they did we're dealing with Gentile believers. Um, and so this was a book that was written uh, by a Jewish person to a Gentile audience. Uh, it's short style, um, terse, clear, and pointed, would appeal to the Roman mind and can best be described as a book written by a Jew for the unevangelized layman of practical Roman mentality. Um, and so again, you have a different kind of perspective and Maybe this is something that if, if someone you know is searching, um, if they're a Jew, we don't maybe necessarily encounter a lot of Jews who are searching for anything, but uh, if someone has a kind of a legalistic mind or a legal mind, you know, a, a, um, a reasoned mind, you can say read the book of Mark 
and work with them through that and say, well, what does that say? You know, what does it say when you begin to see these facts and it's laid out short? That's one of the nice things about the Gospel of Mark is it's one of the shortest ones, doesn't go into a lot of detail. Uh, but for those who are maybe just kind of questioning, you can take them, people through some points and just ask them some pointed questions. And so it's pretty simple, and it moves from, um, it shows that uh, uh, Christ, you know, he establishes his ministry, but then he does supernatural events. So if you're talking to someone, you know, they may, they may dismiss that, but it leaves a question. Do, do, you know, could this happen? Is it possible? Um, if, if these things did happen, what would it mean, Right? So you have um, uh, an opportunity to really explore. And I think that's one of the things that most, most unbelievers just want to dismiss everything. But maybe you can open up the, the conversation and say, well, what if, it, what if it did happen? You know, what, what would that mean if it really did happen, if supernatural events happened? If this man came along and did supernatural events, what would it say about him? And, um, and you can do that. So it shows then... Uh, to us, particularly, or as faith opens up, that this is more than just a man, right? Um, it diminishes the arguments that Jesus was a good teacher, he was just another prophet or anything. He was more than just a mere man, uh, and the, the supernatural attributed to him was important. And then he moves to the cross, of course, and ultimately it leaves the reader with a decision concerning this life of more than a man. What are you going to do about the person of Jesus Christ is what Mark's intention is uh, to ask you. So there's a simple outline, um, the preparation of his ministry. He opens his ministry. He goes into full ministry, closes his ministry out, um, his last journey, and then the passion, which is important as he gave his life that we might be set free and ultimately the resurrection. So those are some things, certainly some things that uh, we need to consider, that everybody needs to consider as they work through this uh, to understand that this is more than just an ordinary life, right? Um, so we see these different credentials uh, coming up, and it moves through various things. I want to uh, point out here um, in this uh, second section I think is some of the most important things that uh, Jesus shows he has authority to forgive sins, right? Um, he shows that he's Lord over the Sabbath, that he has authority over demons, power over nature, and power over death. And so Mark certainly uses those events um, that he had heard about in the uh, and probably observed. He was probably one of the fringe. Um, people as a nephew of Barnabas who was certainly one of the followers of Jesus um, he probably saw these things but he was a little bit younger than most of the other disciples and so he uses all those to establish that um, that Jesus is both God and man not not uh, just a man or or you know and that he was literally um, a, a human uh, as well, who experienced pain and hardship and all those kind of things. So he was God and man. And then um, he, uh, um, goes through the whole, um, you know, I mean, 
Mark's gospel is is uh, pretty pretty clear, but I think um, he uh, answers his question. If we go to page twelve, he says, "What really is is it that we need to look at?" And um, he says this about Jesus in uh, uh, Mark ten forty five: "For the Son of Man also came not to be ministered unto, but to minister." And give his life a ransom for many. Um, if you take that statement um, and break it down, it makes you kind of consider what is what is really going on. He offered his life uh, to buy and pardon all kinds of people, and then the um, other supernatural events point to the fact that uh, something here is important to look at, important to see. So that's a um, the Gospel of Mark in, a, in a, a simple fashion, but you can use these little outlines as you dig through, as you read and consider these things. Um, the third Gospel we want to look at is Luke. And this is important because uh, Luke, as I said, was a follower or a convert probably by Paul in Paul's ministry and started hanging around with Paul. And uh, by believing the facts of the Gospel, he knew some things, and then he had some friends, uh, and so he wanted to put together some accounts to share with his other believers. But Luke is also, uh, as a physician, a learned man, and so he pays some particular attention to detail that the other writers didn't. And, uh, um, and he adds these things so that uh, Gentile inquirers, like Theophilus, the person he writes the two books too, Luke and Acts, um, might be able to get some information. So Luke did some research, uh, checked out some other sources in in his um, uh, working with Paul's ministry. He includes these these, uh, things so that he can point to uh, Jesus as the Savior. But Luke also includes some very important things that other people don't. Um, He really emphasizes the virgin birth. Uh, and as a physician, to you know, be able to put that into a perspective of saying this can't, you know, it can't happen. Um, as a physician, he knows how uh, birth and pregnancy works, and and he outlines and points out that this is a very different kind of an account. Um, he also accounts differently for the birth of John the Baptist, and so he's looking at things uh, from a more clinical perspective. And understanding these are things that just don't happen in regular life. Um, And so he's setting those things up uh, for us to consider. He also, in tracing the genealogy, uh, he goes from human descent rather than royal lineage. I think his, uh, um, if we go uh, in Luke's genealogy, he traces it backwards. Uh, And so he says, where did he come from? And it goes all the way back, if I'm... Remembering that's what he said. So that's in um, Luke 3. Huh? His father, I mean, because it goes back to Mary, to Nathan. Yes. Instead of being through the father. Um, 
Yeah, so whereas, whereas um, Matthew records it from the beginning up to try and say that this is the promised one from the lineage of David, uh, Luke records it and, uh, and goes all the way backwards, tracing all history back to the original um, uh, order of birth. And so kind of pointing that all humanity is coming from the same tree and, uh, and things like that. So uh, that's that. But he also, with that, he establishes uh, the, the totality of history. And then Jesus can be localized in a certain time and place. And so that's important uh, that Luke wants to emphasize um, uh, that this really had, you know, that it, that it came and it came at this particular time because uh, it's all connected from uh, this lineage. And then one of the things that um, ties to uh, the prophetic is that he points out that Jesus is uh, proclaiming that this is going to be the acceptable year of the Lord as the goal of his ministry. When he sits down and reads uh, to start his ministry in Luke chapter 4, um, he, uh, he opens the scroll and reads from that place and uh, um, says that there's a new thing happening uh, right here. So Luke traces all those things back and uh, pays great detail to certain things. And then I think one of the most important accounts that uh, you might be able to gain is that Luke's account of the Passion, um, he includes some things in there from a physician's perspective about the, the real nature of suffering that Christ endured while he was on the cross. Uh, and so he'll, he includes some things in there um, from a medical perspective uh, I remember um, reading something that some other physician really kind of went back and broke down, but with Luke's writing and including some of those things, that uh, um, the, the physical things that Jesus went through um, as, he, as he was on the cross and the, um, uh, the crucifixion causes you to asphyxiate, uh, the tiring of your body to, to try and raise yourself up to get a breath and it ends up choking all the air out of you. And so Luke's perspective from a physician really adds to that uh, study of how humanity and how life is kind of sucked out of humanity um, at that crucifixion. Um, And then he does a different uh, account of the resurrection as well. He's the only one who includes um, the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. uh, And in his resurrected body, he's not necessarily uh, seen and uh, recognized until he um, uh, meets with these disciples and and then all of a sudden they uh, have their eyes kind of opened up as he revealed throughout all of history everything that was about him and uh, opened those things up to him. So again, uh, actual roads, actual places, uh, the accounts are including uh, various things and then... Um, The concluding words of the gospel connect the historical reality with doctrinal truth and show that revelation through Christ is the basis for the preaching of repentance and of forgiveness of sins. Uh, There was no other way um, that those things can happen. Uh, It didn't happen through um, historical Judaism, but because there was now a perfect sacrifice, there was a whole different way of life. And then that brings into... Um, his account of the book of Acts, which uh, we'll probably look at next week as we start to look through that.
that um, these writings to Theophilus uh, just kind of point out who this man was, uh, um, where he lived in life, and that he was different and unique and opened up a way uh, for people to be reconciled to God. And then lastly, let's take a look uh, at the Gospel of John, and that one is unique. Uh, those other three really take into a, a longer view of the life of Christ. John does not um, include as much of those, and it's possible that um, because he was the last surviving uh, disciple, that he was recording some things um, that he wanted uh, other people to know as well. So uh, he writes his stated purpose in John 20, 30 and 31. So if we turn there. This is, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, if you find a new disciple, tell them to read John. Well, John has incredible theology, um, and it really is some deeper stuff. But this little verse right here, if you can get people here, uh, John 20, 30, and 31, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, uh, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And so the purpose of John writing his gospel is to point to life and a different kind of quality of life that only comes through Jesus. So in that uh, account right there, he mentions the keys uh, to understanding who he is with three words, signs believe, and life. Okay, uh, So part of John's reasoning, part of John's uh, uh, point of writing the book is that there's certain things that are very special uh, about this. The signs are the miracles Christ performed that emphasize his deity and illustrate distinct areas of power. These are areas where man is impotent, but Jesus was quite powerful. So think about some of the signs. They were supposed to point to something, and that's what people missed. But this is what he pointed to, different things that he could do. Um, turning water to wine uh, was an area of quality. He could take ordinary things and make them extraordinary. Individual people couldn't do that. And so he had a power over just uh, uh, ordinary things. The healing of a nobleman's son in 4, 46 through 54, uh, transcends space. I, I think that's, uh, let's go there and look. I think that's the account where he um, just tells the, the guy to go, right? John 4, 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son for he was at that point of death. Then, Jesus, uh, then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. 
Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in, in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. And so Jesus didn't have to be there to cause the healing. And his belief, if he was going to trust what Jesus said, uh, he had to kind of incorporate that. So uh, that belief is important. And so the sign, Jesus doesn't have to be there. He transcends time and space. Um, uh, Also feeding 5,000, you know, we can't do that. He could walk on water. Uh, That was natural laws. So all these different signs were pointing to Jesus as being something different. He had authority in areas uh, over, um, uh, over things that human people are powerless in. You know, we don't have the ability to uh, to heal apart from from intervention. And people are now looking at, you know, COVID vaccines, thinking it can help, and it's causing all kinds of other things. So I just heard that they're trying to limit the amount. Well, maybe we should only give half doses. Maybe we should do this. Well, yeah, there's just some weird things that they can't do. Jesus wasn't limited by any of those things, and he wasn't limited by having to be there. He could speak it. But that brings up belief then. Um, Belief occurs 98 times in the Gospel of John. uh, And belief is more than just an acknowledgement. It carries the weight of full trust or complete commitment to Christ. Um, And I think that's sometimes something that we miss. That belief uh, really is putting the full weight of something behind that. Sometimes I try and illustrate to people that you know, what you believe means that something is going to follow, right? If I believed that I could get in my car and drive into a brick wall at 65 miles an hour and live and everything would be fine and I would have no damage to my car or the wall, I believe that. I sincerely believe that with all my heart, right? Well, if I don't do anything about it, is it really a belief or is it just some kind of odd notion or you know weird thing and so generally if we believe something we put some action behind it and that's something that a lot of times misses people oh yeah i believe that uh, you know oh yeah christ died for my sins but they don't put the full weight behind what does that really mean if christ really died for your sins and you believe that then something is going to go on and something should follow and uh, and that's something, you know, that some people miss on. And so uh, John really emphasizes that throughout his gospel. And he wants people to, uh, to do something different. And so uh, that belief means that you're moving into uh, some kind of movement of putting the weight of that belief behind that. And so we have uh, signs, belief, and life. And the life that John talks about is more than just animalistic vitality, you know, biological life. He talks about this, um, this, this quality of life that's a gift of God to Christians and the goal for Christians. 
The goal for Christianity is not to believe and have heaven. The goal of Christianity is to live this life um, that God has provided, this abundant life. And so he uh, really emphasizes those things uh, throughout his gospel and, uh, and shows this different kind of uh, things that are interacting. So there's a, an outline here, and um, you can use that to do a little bit deeper study if you are so inclined. Um, and, uh, and what he shows, but again, there's some conflict. Uh, I think uh, the conflict in the middle of that page, our conflict carries controversy to the logical crisis. A hesitant disciples, cynical brethren, a waning, bewildered multitude, and opposition of the Jewish hierarchy come to a head in, uh, in the section of the gospel around Jesus' stated mission in 1017. So um, in John 1017, Jesus himself states what his purpose is. And uh, and the disciples didn't recognize it. He says, therefore, uh, does my father love me because I lay down my life uh, that I might take it again? No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And so uh, within that context, um, he comes to a place of what is he going to do? Is he going to do the will of the Father, or is he going to do his own will? And so he doesn't take up his own life at that place. Um, and then the uh, uh, something that John really emphasizes is the personal relation to Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of I am statements that are in there, and within that context, it uh, it brings back the the sense that um, when God first spoke to Moses and said, "Who do you say I? Who do you say sent me?" He says, "Say I am." And when Jesus begins to use those, it meant something uh, to the audience and to the people who saw it. So he makes that emphasis of uh, of being the God Man uh, in person. And then um, uh, we just see some other things that John really uh, appeals to. And ultimately, um, uh, his gospel uh, appeals to the reasoning of man to examine the evidence, considering all that is presented, and allowing for the vastness of understanding to be greater than that which is presented, and appealing for the decision of belief or unbelief. And so that's why a lot of people might turn people or, you know, ask people to read the book of John. Um, it demonstrates a different kind of quality of intimate love and personal relationship. And so I think a lot of people think that. But there is so much theology that's in there that for a new believer, um, they're not going to get as much. But as we as believers, if we begin to look at that in deeper res- uh, perspectives of, uh, of a challenge to understand more of what John has laid out. It's, um, it's about noting the signs and believing and having life uh, in him. And so he appeals to the fact of what are you going to do? All, all, three, or all four gospel writers say, here's some evidence. What is your decision regarding who this man is? And uh, so it's a, an interesting thing. So we see certain historical events interacted, uh, and yet also a lot of theology 
um, but it's theology for understanding and belief, uh, not for practice. So, any questions? A lot of information to try and cover, sorry. So use these, you know, you have different outlines here. You can go back and you can do your own study. You can uh, work with some of these things. But um, uh, it's, uh, it's edifying for us to be able to understand at a deeper level, not just, you know, not just read to read, as Kevin points out every week, that we should be reading Scripture. Uh, maybe you'll take one of these and periodically just kind of, you know, all the, we're going to outline all the different books as we look at it and see what each book of the Bible um, uh, lays out for us. And so periodically take some of these and, and do a deeper study on your own, not just a cursory reading uh, of this material.